0: All right, everybody doing okay tonight? We shall, from this point forward, call this group the remnant, the righteous remnant of God that has remained and that underwent and succumbed to the Babylonian captivity so that we could return to the promised land at some point, right? All right, let's uh, talk about Jeremiah. I know y'all don't have any questions about anything in 1 Timothy, so we won't... Uh, worry about that tonight um, so and we're going to talk about Jeremiah we won't talk we won't spend a whole lot of time on Jeremiah tonight we've got another week in Jeremiah uh, actually another week and a half uh, the way that it just works out we uh, Jeremiah and then lamentations which lamentations is Jeremiah's uh, writings uh, those end on october 31st and you start Ezekiel on November 1st and so we got a couple more weeks with Jeremiah and then we move on to Ezekiel and Ezekiel will take up a good part of November and then Daniel will be uh, real quick. Daniel won't won't take I mean Daniel will take a little while, but in December we'll basically go through twelve different prophets uh, or so. Somewhere around there in December. I'm not sure of the exact number. We'll go through a lot. We've got the minor prophets in December. So Hosea, Malachi, Habakkuk Amos. You want me to throw in a couple just see if you know they're not in there? Uh, in, in college, they did that one day. They told our biblical studies class to turn to Hezekiah. It's not in there. So, All right, Jeremiah, what questions do you have? Things you wonder about, overall impressions, things you noticed? Good. One second, Miss Eleanor first, then we'll go, Miss Dottie. Well, I, I think, Miss Eleanor, it doesn't... I, I think that that was a part of their commitment to God and that their ancestor had passed it on to them as... Because the Bible is very complimentary of what they've done in saying that they remember their ancestor. And God says, therefore, you will always have those that serve me. The idea, you know, at the end of that, when he talks about it, uh, that's today's reading, right? That's the... Um, He says, the Lord, this is, it's chapter 35, uh, verse 19. He says, therefore, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says, uh, Jehovah Nabab, son of Rechab, will always have descendants who serve me. So the idea there that I think God is is, uh, saying is that they've served me. And even though he didn't require of all of Israel to serve him, by, not, by abstaining completely from alcohol and what they did. They, as their commitment to him, followed through with it. And the point is, they have listened and done what has been said, where Israel never has. And so it was, I don't, It just because it doesn't say in there that they didn't serve the Lord, I don't think that, he's talking, that's two different groups. What he says is, Israelites, you did not obey me. Now look at this family over here. They've listened to their ancestor, and I, the understanding is in the way that he instructed them to follow me. So this family, we joked about the remnant. It's kind of like a remnant that did what was supposed to be done. And I've come to you, Israel, time and time again, and you've rejected, you won't listen to my words. But this family has gone so far not only to follow what I've said, but they've followed even what their ancestor said in the way that I should. So it's, I don't think in that thing, he's not saying that this family has disobeyed him. He's saying the country of Israel has disobeyed him. Ms. Dottie, you, I, all I know is that Jeremiah received the message and he delivered it. Now, how? What's that? Yeah, I don't know how. I, I don't know if it was an audible voice. I don't know if it was mentally. I don't know if it was in prayer. There's spiritual kind of understanding there. But the, all that is evident, it, it's evident a lot. Because one of the major conflicts in Jeremiah is... God's true prophet Jeremiah versus these false prophets uh, that are around. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think there's there is, and I, I mean, I think this is true today. When when people proclaim the word of God, there is the essence. Now, not in the same way that Scripture is written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but there is this essence that someone that is doing the work that God has called them to do. That God is speaking through them, and so uh, He's using uh, on Sunday mornings, using hopefully my mouth uh, that I've submitted to His will enough and studied enough that He then communicates through me, through my mouth. And so I don't know that uh, I don't think that I think it was just the kind of that same kind of inspiration and and uh, now it's different because Jeremiah is a prophet that eventually. Became scripture, his words and what he said and his actions, and so it was a different kind of inspiration, but it was just that that God kind of flowed through his life. The what now? They would have had some, but but based they would not. Um, I mean, where he is, he's after Josiah's reform, so he would have had the law and those kind of things. Now he wouldn't have had uh, a lot. He wouldn't have had a lot of what we have, uh, but he would have had uh, the the Torah. Uh, Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, almost assuredly. Yes, Jack. Yeah, that was that was a dream vision. Yeah. Now I think God spoke to him in a variety of ways. I mean, there's the he's in he's kind of in a public prison out there for people to come by and see, and God speaks to him and tells him to buy the land and all of that. So I think Jeremiah is just what you get from Jeremiah is that he's very in tune with God at all moments of wakefulness or sleep, which I guess would be all moments. Yeah, well, I think that, well, you know, the, he had punished them throughout. It wasn't like, the, you know, I mean, you look at the book of Judges, there's punishment. You look at what he did to the northern kingdom. But typical human kind of reasoning is it will always happen to someone else. You know, even for us. Well, you know, if you, you expect, if, if let's say you're doing something and you know that you're doing something wrong and you see somebody else get caught for it, sometimes it emboldens what you're doing because you say, see somebody else is going to get caught, I'm not going to get caught. Uh, you know, we see it. Uh, I've been, for some reason, the story of John, John uh, Edwards has come out more recently a little more. And Elizabeth has written a book and some things like that. And and he just didn't think he was going to get caught. You know, I mean, that's what it comes down to because... And, he, he was friends with the Clintons at one time. He should have known that those kind of things. I mean, he, he's been in politics long enough. but And you get the sense that Israel's just kind of, well, this just not going to happen to us. And God says, no, it is. And what he basically says is, I've been patient because I love you. Um, I think about my own children, that there are times when I say, if you do this, then this will happen. And we try to follow through on discipline, but there are moments when you just you love them so much, you would rather not discipline them, and you hope they make the right decision, and even when they make the fault wrong decision, you still hold out hope that there's that, you know, chance that they're going to make the right decisions. Yeah. And God isn't necessarily changing His mind. I mean, God knew all this was happening, but I think it's His forbearance and His love and compassion. I think in the New Testament, the verse that we have where He says that God wishes none should perish. But he has extended, or, you know, the, the year is like a thousand days. A thousand days is like a year. Uh, and God is patient, hoping that we'll do our job so that none should perish. And the idea that he's extending time to give us more opportunities. All right, anything else in Jeremiah? Okay. <laughs> now, is she just going to listen to the recording or is she going to trust what you tell her when you come back? You know, that, that's awfully nice of her, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the desolation of it. Well, you know, even when you get into New Testament times, the reason that it fades out for us is because after the captivity, we don't have anything else written in Scripture. I mean, the uh, what we've already read in Ezra and Nehemiah, some of those are some of the last kind of uh, historical things that are written in Scripture before the time of Christ. And in the time of Christ, you have uh, the Herods and those guys that are acting in some ways like kings, even though. Rome has overtaken them. And so uh, there there were times when they were conquered. Uh, We talked the other night in uh, our discipleship training class about modern-day Judaism, and they celebrate Hanukkah, which is a celebration that comes from the time of the Maccabees, which was in that intertestamental period, and they tried to restore the monarchy then. So after they were attacked and things happened, and so uh, there were still leaders and kings and those kind of things. It's just that we don't have record of them because... We don't have that intertestamental period uh, kind of taken care of, so I don't know. Does she have a reference down there? She just, I'll look that up for Miss Sue. Leslie, time period here would have been around the um, 580s B.C., 600 to 550 B.C. Um, they returned from captivity in five. 36, I believe, is when they returned from captivity. So it was in about 600, maybe it's 512. I need that chronology. But in the 500s BC, 500 years before Christ, Babylon was around for quite a while. I mean, one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world were the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Um, Babylon was a, a world power for a long time, and so when that's one of the things in Jeremiah when that. When Jeremiah begins to predict that Babylon will fall, I mean, that would be like saying today that the United States is going to fall as a nation. I mean, on a world stage, if you you know, that that in 70 years, this country will have no significance worldwide. I mean, people would just say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, when Jeremiah was saying that Babylon would fall, now, we, on the other side of it, go, absolutely, of course they're going to fall. But for the people around them, it was like, no, no, that... They're they're not, not going to fall. They're, they're Babylon, you know. I mean, they're uh, a great kingdom. So they they were around for, for hundreds of years. A lot of yeah. They 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 were not like Egypt, where that their pharaohs were deities. Uh, they had um, they had I mean they had uh, a definite god structure that they worshipped. Uh, that would have been different. And when we get into Daniel, we'll see some of that. But uh, Certain emperors, I mean, obviously in Daniel, he sets up a the emperor sets up a statue to himself uh, that would have been among other gods. So theirs wasn't as highly trained and formalized as the Egyptian concept of Pharaoh as deity. They had rulers, now, yeah, yeah. That, that's what we were talking about. They had. I, I, I would have to brush up on my intertestamental period history to see that. I mean, they definitely had guys that ruled over them as if they were kings, but to be coronated kings—that's why I'm hesitating on that. They definitely had leaders that acted as the kings in this book that we see act, but to have coronated—I'm not, I'm not sure. So, yeah, but there—but you have to remember, this was also the time period when they had like two. Remember, the Northern Kingdom had all those. Uh, battles over who was king and assassinations. And the southern kingdom had all of these similar kind of things. And so it was uh, just because Adikai didn't have any remnants, there were other lines of David's family that could have taken that role. He, yes. Anything else, other impressions or questions in Jeremiah? We read two very important passages, that two of the most quoted passages in all of Jeremiah. This week, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. And then uh, also, uh, the Jeremiah, where he talks about the new covenant that will come. That it won't be like the old covenant. That Jesus seems to reference on the night of the Lord's Supper, that there will be a new covenant where man can talk directly to God. They won't need an intermediary. And so, uh, Jeremiah twenty let's turn there. I don't know what day. Oh, It's on Sixteenth, and what is often missed is the setting in which that verse is given right because how is that verse mostly used it's mostly used for us saying don't worry God's got plans for you he'll pull you out of this real quickly okay you just got to trust him well Jeremiah 29 11 comes in the midst of God saying you're about to go to Babylon and settle in Mary Remain faithful to what you've been called to do, but build houses, make a living. You're not coming back in two years. This ain't going to be a short-term thing. It's going to be a long-term investment. So just settle in where you are in the midst of this difficulty. Remember who I am. Don't be taken away by their sorcerers and their magicians and their prophets. Don't hire somebody over there to be a prophet for me. You just settle in because remember, one day I'm going to bring you back. Because I know the plans I have for you. And there are plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you, a hope, and a future. But for the next 70 years, you're going to be in captivity. And so it's a... Yeah, what, what he's saying is, it, what, and this is this interesting thing in here, because Jeremiah keeps telling them, Babylon's coming, they're going to take us, and it's going to be a long time. So the best thing we can do is just accept the punishment the Lord has given us. And these other prophets and kings were saying, no, no, no. We're going to fight. Babylon's not going to take us. And if they do, in two years, all that stuff's going to be back. And what God says is, basically, just take the punishment. And if you'll submit, you're not submitting to the Babylonians. You're submitting to me. And it is an interesting... I mean, can you imagine any other God saying, my people are going to be a defeated and they need to submit to this pagan nation, but they're really submitting to me. It shows this massive, overarching idea that God is in control of every circumstance and that nothing happens outside of His sight. And even the pagan Babylonian king is operating under the authority of God. And you just take it. Now, we've all told our kids that. This is your punishment. Just take it. It'll be much easier if you will just take the punishment now instead of what comes later. Just submit to it, and we'll move forward. And that's what Jeremiah tells them. Yeah, yeah. And he keeps telling them, those that go to Babylon, they're better off. If you stay here, you're going to be in trouble. Go to Babylon. All right, anything else in Jeremiah before we go over to Second Thessalonians? Yeah, I'm looking real quickly. I must have gone over to 32. Um yeah, the answer is it hasn't come yet. Yeah, I mean, what you have are these kind of multiple prophecies in there, and in chapter 31 um, is uh, the new covenant. The new covenant has been instituted, but is not completed, and so it's been inaug- It's called the the theological term for that is inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology is the end times. And that it has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. It has not been finished. And so, we are in those last days when we're moving towards that, Jack. That's that new covenant. And there are those of us that have that new covenant relationship with the Lord. But there will be a day when God brings back and restores the new Jerusalem. And it will never be defeated. And you won't have to tell... One of the things I think is interesting there says you won't have to say to your neighbor, hey, this is what God says, because everyone will know in their hearts. And so... It's obvious that that's not now, nor has it ever been, and it will not be until the end. Yeah. I think that that there's no... I would say that we are living in the last days. We have been since Christ rose again from the grave. And so uh, we are in the last days, but it's not been finished. And so we are still moving towards that. Charlie, the, uh, the New Testament understanding of that is that just as that king is no longer a physical king, that that's not, there's not an actual king of Israel who is from the line of David currently, Jesus Christ is that, then the Levitical priests who are uh, to be the ones that lead people in worship, that lead people in sacrifice are those leaders of the church today who continue that, that legacy. And there was an, kind of a... Jesus obviously fulfills the line of David, but there was, uh, you know, all, has always been someone to lead people in worship of God since this time. Yeah. When I stop when I stop the rules of nature, that's when it'll happen. Alright, let's go to the New Testament. We started in 2 Thessalonians a little bit. Any questions there. I got lots of notes on James 5 that I did at 4 o'clock. We're going to Thessalonians, right? Alright, I'm getting there, Cliff. Chapter 2, verse 3. Yeah, this is, by the way, this is the reference where people get the, this is one of the best references people get for an Antichrist. Now, it doesn't say that here. It says a man of lawlessness. Now it also says there will be lots of that. Uh, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Uh, the idea is that there will all there, from this moment forward in time, uh, there will be this lawlessness that continues to build and build and build. Now it does seem like he's describing uh, days uh, like our own, especially when you get into. Uh, Uh, I'm I'm confusing probably a little bit. Uh, I am. Timothy and some things. But but this idea in Thessalonians is that there will be this heightened thing and then that that somehow, and I don't know how it fully works out, Uh, I don't think we're supposed to know, we're supposed to be on guard against things like this, but that Satan will at some point exalt someone who will become this man of lawlessness. Uh, Most modern translations translate it that way because how in the world do you translate it different than the man? I mean, that's what it says literally and there's no modern term that kind of fits that. The man of lawlessness. Now, we think of man of lawlessness as somebody that opposes the police department. Okay? That lawless is somebody that's not following the laws of our country. That's not what lawlessness means here. It means not paying attention to or caring about God's law in the least. Now, there are lots of people like that today. But it seems that it will build towards this kind of crescendo. Right, yeah. This is also, I mean, these few verses, and when we get to Revelation, we'll talk a lot about this, but like the Left Behind series, um, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins wrote, uh, which is really good fictional writing. Um I don't mean fictional in any kind of derogatory term there. It's got to be fictional because it hasn't happened so it's not non-fiction. Um, you could they have a book basically on that four or five verses. So they write, that's why I think and at times I think like those things like that are dangerous to write 350 pages on five verses of scripture and how it will exactly play out and And all of that. Now, I'm not saying that this won't happen. It will happen. It's in Scripture. But how it will happen, every generation interprets how it will happen differently. Which is not bad. We all expect Christ to return in our generation. And we need to live that way. You also have to remember, they're writing these things to people that it wasn't popular to be a Christian in their day. And I don't mean that they got made fun of on CNN. I mean, they got their houses raided and their worship services interrupted and arrested and beaten for believing in Jesus. Yeah, he wrote, Hal Lindsey wrote, 88 Reasons Christ is Coming Back in 1988. Uh, and then the next year there was 89. He's coming in 89. There's a story, and this is it is appropriate here, and I've told the story before here probably, but there's a story of a prophet in the year 999 that predicted that at the stroke of midnight, when the millennium turned, Christ would return. And uh, you were there? Does that say you remember that? Oh, I'm joking with you, Brenda. Uh, And at the stroke of midnight, for some reason, the town clock skipped a beat. And people died. Literally had heart attacks in the street. Huh? Is over in Europe, that's that's been a few hundred years ago, right? 2000. Now, this was that's what I'm saying. 1000, that's it's been around for a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah, but that was because computers were going to destroy us all. So, all right, anything else in 2nd Thessalonians? Anybody feel bad about sitting down and reading this, taking a break when you read about idleness and how you weren't supposed to be idle? Don't give anything to them. All right, let's go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is the first of what they call the pastoral epistles. Now, remember, epistles are letters. Why are they considered pastoral epistles? Because they... What's that, Alan? Yeah, they were written to pastors about how to pastor. All right, now... 2 Timothy is much more of a personal letter, but 1 Timothy and Titus, those are the three pastoral epistles, are, seem very much like Paul kind of instructing young guys in how to do ministry. 1 Timothy is basically, here's what you're doing wrong at the church right now, or here are some suggestions for you. It, it, just to give you kind of a, it'd be like me almost sitting down with, with my father-in-law, who's pastored for uh, 30 or 40 years and saying, all right, let's talk about pastoring. What what are your suggestions for that? Or sitting in a seminary class with an experienced pastor like I did in seminary, and he said, here are some lessons I've learned along the way. And so Paul and Timothy were almost like a father and son, so it's a little closer than a seminary setting, but it really is just him imparting some wisdom to him. These were all written in about a five-year period, um, and I'll give you a handout next week. My My printer malfunctioned this afternoon a little bit, and so... I'll get you uh, some stuff on the All Pastoral epistles next week uh, that shows you times. He wrote first Timothy, Titus and then second Timothy um, and so but we're going to read them in the order they're in the Bible all right And so that's what's going on in First Timothy. Now what questions do you have about First Timothy? Yeah we, you know, Here's what I think. okay I think that one of the problems the early church had, is and you see this in writings, and you see this in things that were happening, is that they were giving more freedom to women than any other group was around. And there were ladies who were abusing that freedom. We saw that in 1 Corinthians where they were doing things in a church they would never do in public. Okay, And we are in a very, at this time period, a very male-dominated society. Uh, I do believe that Scripture teaches there is a biblical understanding of uh, the male as the leader of the family and as the male as the leader of society and the male as the leader of church. Um, And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is, what, huh? What Paul is saying to Timothy is, don't let them run over you or the leaders of your church, okay? Okay. Now, we are a part of a church that has uh, no female deacons. Uh, We don't have uh, on ministerial staff females. We do have female staff members, but not in ministerial staff positions. And part of that comes from my understanding of this passage. Uh, I don't believe that females should be uh, in the authority position of a church. And I think not only here, but in other places in Scripture, it teaches that. Now, to say that they can never speak a word in church, I don't think that's what is intended here. Um, if that's the truth, I remember Dr. Ken Hemphill saying this. I had him for a class. He said that means no woman could ever sing. It means no woman could ever give a testimony. Because he says, if you're singing a song, aren't you trying to impart biblical understanding? He said, so I think to just make a blanket statement that no woman can ever teach in a situation where a male is present, is not what is intended of this passage. What I do think, and you have to remember too, they didn't have a structured Sunday school environment. That didn't mean they didn't have small groups. But they didn't have a nominating committee that submitted a proposal to the church every year and then they voted on who were going to be the teachers of the church. When he's talking about teaching here, he's primarily talking about in the public worship service of the week. Okay? That's my understanding. And so, uh, I have, I, I would struggle with, uh, and this is just me personally, I would struggle with a female uh, preaching a sermon uh, as the authoritative figure. Um, now, sharing a testimony or singing, I think, is different than preaching the sermon. And so, Uh, I think in a Sunday school class, um, I would not be comfortable with a female teaching an all-male class. Neither with the female nor the all-male class. But in a couples class, a husband and wife sharing together what's happening in their lives. I mean, that's what you're really talking about here. You're not going to have, like I said, you're not going to have a female teaching an all-male class. That's just, I mean, perhaps there are those places in, but it's not going to happen here. Uh, this is one of those issues. Even the greatest, most conservative Southern Baptists haven't had a major issue with uh, W. A. Criswell, who was one of the greatest pastors of the Baptist Convention, First Baptist Dallas, Texas, built what they call the first mega church. His wife had a class that was bigger than most churches, but it was a couples' class, and he assisted in some ways. Does that answer your question or muddy it? I have been taught and learned that I do not pretend to know anything about childbearing or to talk about how I mean that goes back to the first the first curse and promise uh, that that their punishment Eve's punishment for that first sin was pain and childbearing. Adams was pain and labor. No, no, no that that, that that's that's saved is not obviously it doesn't mean that every woman that's had a child before will will ha- we'll be in heaven and that goes against every other biblical teacher you want to call Paul up and tell him to use a different word there Miss Dottie it, it's not it, save is one of those words that's got multiple things and I don't know I didn't look up uh, I can here in a minute I did not look up what that word is I'll look it up in just a second and see what the actual Greek word is there. what's that say that again but save there does not mean justification for sin um, let's just look it up how about that let's see if I can find the Greek here uh, that is 1st Timothy give me the 2 15 alright let's see what comes up it is the uh, it is which means a lot to you keep from harm persevere preserve rescue save that's the uh, what it means in its original verse so it is a verb that's used quite a lot about uh, salvation but I think the context tells us that it's not justification from sin that it's um, I just think that that that's part of the curse and that that's part of the penalty we you have to pay and I don't think that Paul, I think Paul intended the main thing to be, hey, make sure that we remember social structures and those kind of things. Most, most denominations that allow women as pastors would say that Paul was writing in a specific context to a specific people and that that specific context is no longer applicable. Because of women's state then, women's state now is different. So that was for a specific time. They would almost like we talk about the Old Testament laws that they would say, that, "Well, that was a specific time frame." Yes, it was. Yes, it says in I'm looking at some Greek dictionaries here, which y'all would all find absolutely fascinating. Um, Lonida, which is kind of a popular one, has healed rescued saved as the three uh, understandings of that the theological dictionary of the New Testament um, it means to deliver from a direct threat to bring safe and sound out of a difficult situation Um, so it it means rescue it means deliverance but I think the question is well, what is it delivered from Um, and it, it Means, I think it's going back, and I think that that entire passage intends to take you back to Genesis chapter three. And just chapter three, the curse that comes is the pain in childbearing But it's also that she shall desire after her husband. There's that idea that there is um, not that God didn't have the structure of the family already set, but that that would be uh, uh, strengthened or uh, made firmer in that in that uh, rebellion. And I think that's what Paul intends for Timothy to go back to, is to say, you need to remember these things before you let um, women stand up in the public place and begin to speak out in ways that are detrimental to the church. All right, what else in First Timothy? I think husband, yeah, the overseer and deacon kind of thing, I think personally that that means faithful to the woman to whom you are married. Um And that being one woman. Um, And so here's, I think that, so people ask, what about divorced deacons? Okay, I think that uh, if a deacon is a member of your church and they get a divorce while a deacon because of um, inappropriate conduct or moral failure, then I think they relinquish their rights to be deacon until it can be proved that they are faithful and a one-woman man. Um, I think that this verse has been used in some ways to exclude men that should not be excluded. And in other ways, uh, some churches have gone too far the other way and allowed anyone. Um, I've told this story before, but uh, I don't know if I've told it here. Uh, this verse is strange to me for a couple of reasons. One is in a personal way. My, and I, I've shared, I think I've shared this here. But my dad and my mom were both married before they married each other. And so uh, I am their child. Brian is actually from my mom's first marriage. But my dad has adopted and has, has full rights and all of that. Um, when they got married, my dad was an unbeliever. And after he married my mom, he accepted the Lord, he was baptized, and has served faithfully in a church now for 32 years. But in his home church, he cannot be a deacon because he was previously married. Now, he was previously married before he became a believer. And so I think that is legalism in applying this understanding. Um, And so... And that, that's personal bias. Obviously, I know my dad. My dad hasn't sought being a deacon. I'm just, I just know that his name his name does not even appear on the ballot because he's been previously married. Now, if, we, if you had a drug addict who had wrecked his life for 30 years and then found Christ at 35 and served the church for 20 years, he'd be lifted up as an amazing man of God. Look what he's overcome how wonderful he is. Right? And so, um, and that's not to say that there aren't good Christian men, that their marriages fall apart and sometimes the female leaves and will not reconcile, will not talk, will not act. Uh, Same way sometimes males leave and to say that they were at fault and not that there weren't some fault, but to punish them indefinitely because of that I think is unbiblical. Paul is talking here in a polygamous society to a group that he's saying, "Listen, make sure they're one woman man, that they got their house in order, and that they're able to handle their family responsibilities." What's that? Say that again. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the in the in the um, in the Greek, it, the word is Though The word is there in the Greek. It's not. Uh, not something that's been added in. Uh, the issue is uh, whether or not deaconess means a female deacon or whether it means a a wife of a deacon. I, I mean, it's apparent that a deacon and his wife, you, when you have a deacon, you are supposed to get a pair. You get a deacon and his wife if they're married. And so that uh, term is used, and it was that's not uncommon in their time frame or to refer to, uh, the pastor's wife, as the pa- I mean, don't, don't anybody call Susan this, all right? The pastoress, all right, but or the deacon. I mean, that that was just a term used at times to to do that. Now there are obviously those denominations that say no. This means that there ought to be female deacons. What's interesting is <laughs> most um, most uh, you have to take the, because of the proximity of where this comes to what we just talked about. You, if you believe that, well, it says deaconesses, so there must be deaconesses, then how do you deal with the authority issue that was mentioned a few verses earlier? And the churches that have women deacons will say, well, we take that literally, but we don't take this point over here as literally. That was for a particular time. But then there are a lot of conservative churches say, well, we take this very literally. Oh, but deaconesses, well, that was just, that was different. And so it's the hardest thing to do in the Bible is to live it all, and to not the Bible isn't contradictory, but there are a lot of people that try to live it out that are contradictory about how they try to live it out. I I think it, it's talking about the wives of deacons there, because of the structure that's there. And, and I don't well because it, it's in it, it's in the Greek. I mean, there's deaconesses in the Greek. The wife, deacons and deacons' wives, uh, should be respectable people. They should be um, held to a certain uh, ability. I mean, verse 11. It comes out of verse 11 where it says, in the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect. I mean, the actual word there, in the same way deaconesses, I mean, if you look in the Greek, it's the word deacon with the female ending on it. It is the actual word in the Greek. I know. I think there's a lot of verses y'all could have a lot of fun with. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 23 tells him to drink, right? Yeah. They didn't have Pepto back then. So, in the absence of Pepto, you use a little red wine. Um, so, would you like to tell us the story about how you know that, care? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Here's why I have... I mean, you have... I mean, obviously, they're not to be drunks, because... Your past, it says now here's the, here's the thing for y'all to understand. There's a lot of debate that there's not a lot of debate among church memberships until it comes to the church leadership debate usually about what is meant by elders at the beginning of this chapter. Okay, I take elders to be staff. Okay, and then deacons are to be deacons. There are a lot of there are a lot of guys my age especially that are pushing that elders means kind of a ruling board underneath or side by side with the staff okay i think elders mean staff and so if you'll notice there are higher expectations for staff than there are for deacons but both of them have there they shouldn't be drunk they shouldn't be given to wine here's the thing that i know okay i know that um, that they drank wine in the new testament faithful believers in jesus Christ drank wine and so did Jesus. And I think to say it was unfermented somehow, just fresh pressed grape juice, is naive. Okay. Now, what I also understand is that alcohol consumption then is much different than alcohol consumption today. Um, alcohol consumption then was was vital. Because your choices of drink were water, milk, because they went into the land flowing with milk and honey. But most people, they did not have a Publix or a Kroger or a milkman, all right? Or you drank wine. Now, why did you drink wine instead of fruit juice? Because they didn't have refrigerators. And what happens, Carol, when you leave wine out? It ferments, right? So how do you store wine? You store it in a place where it ferments so it lasts longer right and so i don't have any doubt but but that's what they had to drink and so today when i walk into the convenience store i got a couple of more options right and most people that drink today i'm not saying all but most people that drink today drink for one reason and it is to obtain some sort of feeling experience from the drinking. Now, for some people, it's to get wasted. But even those that just drink some, it's to lose some inhibitions or to fit into a social setting. Okay? So it's a different kind of thing. I say as a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot point to a single verse of Scripture that says this is always absolutely wrong to drink. As a believer, I have also never taken a drink of alcohol in my life. Um, why? Well, the main reason is because of, and I've said this before, how people would perceive my witness if they saw me doing it. If you drove the the Mexican restaurant down here, and I'm having three tacos and two cold beers. There are going to be some phone calls to the office on Monday morning. And there wouldn't even have to be church members in the restaurant for the phone calls to come. Right? I mean, there'd be somebody's friend that's a friend of a friend that goes to the Methodist church down the street who saw somebody at the Episcopal church who let somebody at the Presbyterian church know that the Baptist preacher was drinking. Right? And, so, and, and I don't need... There's no reason I need alcohol. Timothy, in their day, a, t- a way to settle the stomach was through wine. If you've ever, I've lived through periods of my life with upset stomach, and water does not help. And so Paul's saying, drink a little bit of it. So you can't find that. And here's what, as a pastor, I cannot tell a congregation that it is always wrong. And I, we have not made any formal kind of declaration but I would hope and I believe that it is appropriate to request from your leadership abstinence for the societal implications and what people will see. I mean, it's it's a different setting, but uh, I never have. I, I don't foresee any reason I never I ever will. And part of that comes from a personal thing. My grandfather was a an alcoholic, uh, my, on my dad's side. I never knew him. He died. Alcoholism led to an early death for him. And so there's personal kind of issues there. I mean, I've seen. As a pastor of a church, you see too many people dealing with it. You see too many people that as teenagers were around a bunch of friends and they grabbed a couple of beers, and 15 years later, it is absolutely controlling their lives. Um, You see too many people that, uh, I was talking to my brother-in-law yesterday, and they just bought a new vehicle, and the last time they had a vehicle like this was they had a major accident because there was a guy who had drank a little too much and had gotten on the road and hit them and flipped them over and... um, You know, those memories immediately come to mind. You've seen all that, and you just ask the question Does the good that comes outweigh the problems that come? And the answer is absolutely not. It just does not. I mean, and I joke, they didn't have Pepto-Bismol back then, but they didn't. You know, if you got an upset stomach today, the first thought is, let me go get some wine. Well, my first thought is, let's go get some wine. There may be some people, that's their first thought. My first thought is, is there a Zantac or a Tagamet? That's old. had some problems for a while. That's tagging. That was old. Zantac or is there Pepto-Bismol or a Tums or something I can take. Okay. So anyways, that's my condensed version of the should a Christian have a beer sermon. I'll do sometime. All right. All right. One last thing, and we can talk about this more next week if you want to, because it's a verse people skip over, uh, and it's one that gets me in trouble, so I like to use it as much as possible is that verse that says that uh, women should dress modestly, right? Which means appropriately. But then what's after that? They shouldn't wear clothing to impress other people about what they're wearing. Pearls, gold, all that, right? I know this is hard to imagine, but there were people in Paul and Timothy's day that thought they had to wear their absolute best to church to impress the people around them. And Paul says that is not the appropriate attitude to have when you come to church. You need to come worshiping the Lord, first of all, but you don't come showing off how expensive the clothes are that you have. Now, that doesn't mean you don't dress nicely. That doesn't mean that you don't wear uh, nice stuff, but... When it becomes about that, then there are issues involved. And 1 Timothy is a pretty clear explanation of that. When people read that and think "dress modestly in our day and time, they think it means cover up. And it does mean cover up. But it also means don't wear things just to kind of show everybody how much you got. All right? We're past time tonight. Next week, Second Timothy. I don't know that we get out of Second Timothy next week. We may be in it all week. We'll get into. Maybe, I think we get into Titus a little bit. We we'll may do Second Timothy and Titus next week. Y'all are excited, I know, because before long we will be to Revelation, and we spend almost the entire month of December in Revelation, and we're going to take every Wednesday night off but one in December. I'm just kidding. We are going to take one off, but. We'll talk about Revelation, and it will be at that moment that you will realize how little your pastor knows. All right? We're done.